Live from the center of the earth, girth. Yo, this is Sam Yunin. This is my summer lair. Thanks for coming in. Introduce yourself. The movie that you just directed, which is unseen. And the, um, let's see, a famous like horror monster or something that you really like or something that you kind of grew up with. Introduce the movie and... Who you are, the name of the movie, which, which I already just gave, which is unseen. Mm-hmm. And uh, a favorite like horror monster that you kind of grew up with or you kind of really dig. Okay, I'm, my name is Jeff Redknapp. I'm the writer-director of The Unseen. Um, the Unseen is about the Invisible Man, so he's certainly one of the uh, iconic horror characters that I grew up on. I don't know if he was the one I was most drawn to as a kid. You know, probably more Frankenstein. Not that he's well, he's kind of a monster, but also from the Marvel universe. My big inspiration was the Swamp Thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was telling someone earlier today that uh, when I was a kid I went I went in a barber shop my local barber shop to get my hair cut and I was like six years old and I found the first issue of Swamp Thing in the barber shop where they had their magazines for people to read and uh, it blew my mind and made a very strong impression at an early age so the Swamp Thing is also kind of connected to a lot of like uh, nature to the green to mm-hmm. those kind of things does that uh, was also influenced by like growing up in BC it could have been you know I mean I was I, I don't know if I was, I wasn't exactly a hippie child or anything, but I was definitely, uh, you know, maybe green ahead of the green curve. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I grew up with a lot of animals in my life and, uh, at a fairly young age, I became a vegetarian. So I, t- I sort of turned green, but I don't know. There was just something about the swamp thing being so such a visually striking image. And then the fact that he was also a gentle creature most of the time and, and connected to, to the earth and the, the green. I'm sure if they make that movie at some point, they'll they'll make him very deep and spiritual in a sense. It would be an interesting movie to make. Like you said, you have to balance the two, but at the same time, some of those themes about the environment, the, the green, all that kind of stuff, would be super relevant in these days. Yeah, yeah, it would be good. Um, I bring up the the horror because, as you mentioned, your film Unseen is uh, dealing with the Invisible Man. So, how does somebody who's a special effects artist? end up doing something on with the Invisible Man. Wouldn't that be almost the opposite? <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I guess in, in our case, we made made an adjustment to the character that put it more into my background. Because when we decided we were going to do uh, an Invisible Man story, I just, you know, I was searching for a new idea, something to write a script based on. And I woke up one day, literally went to bed thinking, what can I do, what can I do? Woke up in the morning thinking, hmm, the Invisible Man. And I, I thought, well, we haven't seen that done recently, haven't seen it done well very often. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it differently. So the first thing we did different was that I threw out the whole idea that it was a science experiment gone wrong. I just like, we've seen that over and over again. It doesn't matter how new and modern the lab is versus the original film. It, it's still the same story. So we dis- discarded that, so to speak, and uh, turned it into uh, a sort of mysterious genetic condition and then by taking it out of the lab, it didn't need to be a scientist. It, it could be anyone. So we, we set it in a new, totally new place. A you know, former hockey player living in a small northern town working in a sawmill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely not seen that before. And then the other catalyst was, um, it was actually an idea that my producer had. She said, well, this is great, but I don't want to work really hard to get a, a really strong actor to be our lead in our movie and then have him no- on screen for 10 minutes and then replace him with floating hats and jackets and you know, the <laughs> classic Invisible Man tropes. So when she said that, I started thinking, 
you know, how could we do it differently? And we talked and we came up with the idea that it was a progressive condition, that he was gradually fading away, not an instantaneous uh, result of an experiment or an event. So that put it more in my world because when somebody is fading away piece by piece and you start seeing through them and into them and revealing organs and bones, then it becomes visual. And it, it was achieved on film by a combination of makeup effects and digital effects, which is where I usually hang my hat. Was that kind of the, the challenge that you were going for then, to try and figure out a different way to kind of, quote-unquote, show the Invisible Man? Well, it was more, not so much the challenge, I think, it just to be original, you know, to, to make something that hadn't been seen before. It really helped to reinvent the concept of invisibility. You know, if you're just suddenly invisible head to toe, you just see right through the person. But if you're see, if you're fading away piece by piece, you see a lot. It's a very different picture, so to speak. It's uh, you see inside him, you see through him, you know. And it's just like trying to make put our own mark on it. You know, I, I, when the film was finished and we started putting it out there, I, I decided that we, in a way, had reinvented the Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. And the title itself, Unseen, obviously applies to the Invisible Man, but does it also apply to his daughter, Eva? Because she's kind of missing as well in that part of the the story. Yeah. So she's kind of, quote-unquote, unseen as well. And he's unseen because he moves north and abandons his family. You know, the, the, the idea behind it was that we asked ourselves, well, what would happen if you, somebody was experiencing something like this? And, and we thought, well, they would either run to their doctor and say, what's wrong with me? or they would assume nothing could be done about it and hide, and hide the problem from the world. And uh, so, you know, he's the absent father because he abandons his family without explanation, and, and so he's, he's unseen in their lives, and she, like you said, she's unseen. But it also connects to H.G. Wells's novel because when I went, when I, start, I started fleshing out this script, this concept, and partway in I said, well, I should go back to the original source material, you know, just to see what's there see if there's stuff I should reference or allude to or use or ignore. You know, I like, didn't want to write this new story and then realize I just totally ripped off H.G. Wells, you know, beyond just the character idea. Um, so I did go back and read the novel a couple times, and the thing I found in it was that they refer to the character as the unseen. When we first made the film, it was called Unseen, and mm -hmm. then I read the book and talk, actually I talked to Julia Sarah Stone, the actress, and she had done the same research, and she came to me and said, we should call it The Unseen. And in the book, The Unseen is a very broad, is used in a broad way. You know, it's used to refer to the, the man himself, the unseen, the condition, and, and several other, like, grammatical uses of that word populate the book. I think I did a, a search of the novel, and the, that word appears 29 times or something like that in the book. So... When we decided the movie was going to be called The Unseen, we realized that it did very much apply to the, uh, the characters, the story, the concept, the themes. You mm -hmm. know? Uh, yeah, you know, it's great having a title that has a lot of connections to your film. There's some play there. Yeah, yeah. And does uh, Bob, who's the main character, does Bob's uh, British Columbia, does that reflect your British Columbia as well? Or is that kind of a grittier, dirtier kind of rougher even kind of British Columbia honestly I think if if you went to the places in BC the kind of places depicted in the story uh, you'd probably find them even rougher I did grow up in northern BC I'm very familiar with small town BC I'm I, d I spent a couple summers working in a sawmill which is featured in the film not the one I worked in but a that lifestyle 
I have a very good friend who still lives in northern BC and still works in a sawmill. And he's loosely, the character was based a little bit on his stories. Um, but yeah, I grew up in that world of, of blue collar workers that worked in mills and mines and drove trucks and logging trucks and things like that and lived in small towns that didn't have all the things you'd find in a the city. They would have like, you know, two bars, two gas stations and one grocery store or one convenience store. And it was sort of a rougher, harder life, you know, a lot of winter, mm-hmm. you know, you're not too too fashion conscious, you know? Yeah. And if the mill is like laying off people, then there's not a whole lot of options. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, one of the fun things about making a film like this is that people come to you with their interpretations of it. And several people came to me when the film had been released, uh, you know, to reviewers and stuff, and they, they said, I love how you use the, the idea of an invisible man as a metaphor for the diminishing working class of small town <laughs> North America. The unseen. Yeah, and, and to which I went, yeah, <laughs> I meant to do that. I'm smart. Yeah, but it works though. I mean, oh, that's yeah. that's it's what you're just saying. Like the the title gives it a lot of play, right? So you can look into it because it it's not really the the film's not necessarily dated. Like it doesn't. There's not a lot that kind of dates where the film is, right? Like yeah. in terms of because it's all rural and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that works actually. Yeah, you've been out in BC though for a while because you've been working on a number of TV shows and things like that. Do you mm-hmm. want to just kind of give a quick list of some of the the shows and stuff you've worked on as a special effects artist? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm I am based in Vancouver. I was born in BC, northern BC, and I've been in Vancouver for quite a few years. And uh, I, my makeup effects career began in Vancouver on the X Files, and uh, I was I was lucky enough to. Uh, uh, I, ha- I had pursued makeup effects as a hobby, you know, a basement hobby, a Halloween hobby. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I finished university, I was looking for a job, and I, I somebody said, oh, hey, you know the X-Files films here, you know, and this before I understood the film industry, the film community, and all that. But I reached out to a friend of a friend of a friend, and I got a job, and then the rest is kind of history. And um, This is the original run, right? Yeah, the, I, I did season three four five yeah and then it moved to la yeah yeah and after that it was I, never the same after it moved to la either no it was like sunny mm-hmm. you know? yeah it didn't quite work when chris carter brought the series back to vancouver for the last two new seasons they did i was thrilled you know like because he could have shot it anywhere but mm-hmm. he loved the gray vancouver look and that was the iconic look of the original series in his mind so he brought it back to vancouver and I did a little work on the first season that came back, so that was quite nostalgic. But after that, I, I spent a lot of years working on... Um, I spent some time on the Stargate series, because they were just... I think they shot Stargate shows in Vancouver for 17 years, so you could always find work there. Um, I worked on the Cats and Dogs movies with the Henson Company on the first one, and uh, a different company on the second one. I worked on iRobot. I was talking to somebody about that earlier today, and which was a great great time i was responsible for the robots yeah it's a good robots yeah they it was a very visible it was one of those movies that did almost everything with vis effects but they had re- life-size models of the robots on set that i was responsible for handling transporting posing and then every shot that was going to have digital robots i would wheel the robot into the shot and they would film it so that the vis effects guys had actual reference of what this thing should look like mm-hmm um, and I also had an animatronic uh, robot hand that I used. I puppeteered for, I think, about 20 shots in the movie. They used it for things like Shaken Will's hand and stuff. 
that was a fun one, iRobot. I worked on one of the Underworld movies. Underworld? Yeah, that's right. That's the vampire werewolf yeah, gang I, I, wars. Yeah, I did Underworld Evolution, which was the second one. The second one. It had some very extensive prosthetic makeups. You know, I mean, Scott Speedman was make, in makeups from the waist up, and there was a vampire character who was also full prosthetic makeup from the waist up. You know, these were four or five hour makeup jobs, and mm -hmm. I was part of uh, some of that. And. Um, what else did I do? I worked on Elysium for Neil Blomkamp. That was real fun. Dressing Matt Damon in a mech suit. Uh, and Charlotte Copley, who's a hoot. Uh, and most recently, I've worked on both the Deadpool films. Mm -hmm. yeah. How much fun was it to kind of disfigure Ryan Reynolds then? Because he had all that kind of cancer, or the all the disease on his face. Uh, it was a, a whole lot of fun. You know, I mean, I it's funny because I had I shot The Unseen. And then I was editing the unseen with my editor, and we got part way into the edit, and uh, I heard that Deadpool was coming to town, and the guy that was heading up the uh, the makeup, the prosthetic makeup on the show, is a guy named Bill Corso. He's a famous L L.A. Hollywood makeup artist. I, I call him a Hollywood makeup artist because he's quite old school in his his approach to things. He's just a classic Hollywood makeup guy. You could see him on the set of like Frankenstein. He just yeah. he's that kind of guy. Um, and I'd worked with him on um, Dreamcatcher years earlier, and I ca contacted him and said, hey, I hear you're doing Deadpool. If it's going to be a makeup, hey, can I do it? And he said, yeah, of course, let's let's talk about that. So I ended up coming out with him and uh, another guy in Vancouver named Mike Fields that I work with, and uh, we did Ryan's makeup on the first film. And it was a hoot, and Ryan is an awesome guy. He's so down-to-earth and friendly and funny as hell. He's He's probably funnier than Deadpool, you know, he just... The jokes never stop, mm -hmm. and we had a great time making the film. And it was a bit of it was a bit weird because you know everybody was like, "Oh, I don't know. It's a superhero movie. There've been a lot of them. This one's got swearing. It's raunchy, dirty jokes. It breaks the wall. You know, is it gonna go over? Will people go out, or is it gonna be seen as a weird anti-superhero movie that nobody wants?" A lot of the civilians too didn't know who Deadpool was. No, it wasn't like a Spider-Man or something, right? No, he wasn't so big. But then it came out and it blew up. Everybody loved him, and the film was a huge hit. Made tons of money, which is the reality of the Hollywood <laughs> yeah. system. If it makes money, that's the you get to do another one. Yeah, and I w and I did. I got to do the second one. You know, we came back and did the second one, and uh, we actually improved the makeup. We redesigned. I mean, not me, but Bill and his people in LA that make the pieces. Mm -hmm. They redesigned the makeup to. Uh, uh, be faster because that's the big thing you know if, if you got to do 10 zombies in the background production doesn't particularly care if you need two hours or three hours to do it but mm -hmm. when it's ryan reynolds and he's in almost every scene and he's he's the writer producer on the film too he's got a lot on his plate and so if you go and say yes this makeup takes me four or five hours they're gonna their jaws are gonna drop and they're just gonna lose their minds so uh, as as i recall in the first one we we started out at about three hours to do the makeup and it got faster than that and then on the second one with some redesigns and uh we added another person to the team to speed things up uh, ours in vancouver named bronwyn slowly and uh it we got it down to less than two hours most days and down to an hour and a half one day so ryan was you know over the moon with like you guys are doing my makeup in an hour and a half this is great i can get out of the trailer i can get to set i can start you know because he's always working on the character and the script Mm -hmm. He is literally sitting in the chair going through the scenes for the day and writing new dialogue, like variations or new ideas, because Deadpool's a funny guy, and he makes jokes all the time, and those jokes can come from anywhere. Yeah. And, 
you know, their pop culture reference and modern culture stuff. So he's, he'll see something in the news and he'll put it in the movie, you know. And it, it's like you said, it's just been a real blast doing my day job on something that has been so well received by the fans. You mentioned like going to quote unquote school with the X Files. I bring up all these uh, supernatural kind of mystical kind of shows like that, like X Files and things like that. Did you also learn some other than makeup stuff, but did you also learn about pacing and horror and these kind of things working on those shows that you've used in Unseen? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I always tell people that my makeup effects job has been my own private film school because I, even from the, the beginning, I mean, I knew I wanted to write and direct before I even started working in makeup effects. Like, you know, as a kid, I, I did makeup as a hobby and then I decided, no, I want to direct. And then I continued the hobby, which got me a job, which got me in the industry, which got me on set. And the first time I really, I realized that I had a great opportunity here was working on the X-Files. I got to watch a lot of great TV directors work. And my first real mentor was a guy named Kim Manners. He's a legend in the industry. Kick it in the ass. You know Kim Manners. Yeah. He, there was uh, in one of the recent, actually I wrote it down, the, in one of the recent episodes season 10 yeah season 10 episode 3 there's a scene where Mulder lies against a gravestone yeah and it was Kim Manners grave well not his real one but it was probably like a fictional one and then uh, yeah he just kind of leans against it and it said uh, his catchphrase kick it in the ass yeah he had he had two catchphrases as I recall kick it in the ass was a good one um, I don't know if I can say the other one it's a bit blue yeah yeah go ahead it's on internet it was radio. fuck it in the skull <laughs> that one doesn't quite go on the gravestone. No, no, not on a network show. But yeah. Um, yeah, no, Kim Manners was the first director I watched direct on set and started to learn how to direct. And I watched him do what he did, and I talked to him when I could. And uh, I remember because when I was working on the show, you know, he, he so much going on. He one day he's like, he looked at me, and said, "I'm sorry, I forget your name again." And I said, "It's Jeff with a G." And from that moment on, he remembered me as Jeff with a G. And uh, he'd call me Jeffy sometimes, which not a lot of people get away with. But <laughs> yeah, no, he, he was amazing. And uh, he did the whole run of X-Files. I, I've, I think he directed 86 episodes or something. You can IMDb it. And then a few years after that, he had basically retired to Montana, I believe. And then Supernatural was filming in Vancouver. And it was a lot of the same crew that had worked on Exiles or Millennium, and I don't know if, who it was who got the idea, but they decided, hey, let's reach out to Kim Manners and see if he wants to come and do an episode of the show. So he thought he was done, but he came back to Vancouver and directed an episode of Supernatural, and then he became one of the producers, and I think one of the producers, but definitely one of their regular directors for the first four seasons of Supernatural, and that was the reason I worked on Supernatural. When I would get calls to work on episodes, I'd say, okay, who's directing? Because if it's Kim, I'm there. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter what I was doing, I'm there for Kim. And he was a great guy to work with, and I, I learned so much from him. And unfortunately, he passed away. I don't know the year offhand, but it was season four of X-Files. And that's why you see his gravestone in the new X-Files. It was a tribute to him. And uh, yeah, he was a great guy, and I learned a lot. And I continued to learn a lot. Like pretty, I, I would take jobs on shows to learn. Like the, I remember one time I got a call to work on Santa Claus 2, doing animatronic reindeer and stuff. But I also got a call to work on Dreamcatcher. And I thought about it and I said nothing against Santa Claus 2, but Dreamcatcher is based on Stephen King novel, 
directed by Lawrence Kasdan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DP was John Seal, I think, who was amazing. And uh, uh, I forget the player, the screenwriter, but he was a big name too. And I was just, but mostly it was like, uh, Lawrence Kasdan, see you later. I'm going to go play with some shit weasels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I did. I went and did Dreamcatcher instead. And I watched Lawrence Kasdan direct and learned everything I could from him. And then it continued down the, the road, you know, working on, you know, I watched. Uh, Zack Snyder. I worked on two Zack Snyder films. I worked on Elysium with Neil Blomkamp. I, I, it's, it's, it's so... I mean, even some of the TV is strange now because you see these legendary TV... Well, they're legendary directors for me. Like, Joe Dante comes out and directs TV shows in Vancouver. Kevin Smith directs the DC superhero shows. Yeah, it's Supergirl and all that. Yeah, yeah. I've been offered Timbits by Kevin Smith because <laughs> I worked on Supergirl and he was being generous that day. Oh, it's it's, a, it's been a long... A long journey of working with whoever I could. You know, I shadowed James Cameron on, on an episode of Dark Angel, even though I wasn't working on it, just because I knew he was in town. And I talked to the right people and came to set and followed him around all day. And nobody knew I wasn't supposed to be there. But nobody gave you timbits that day. No, no. But every, most of the, the crew knew me, mm-hmm. and so they just either assumed I was there because I was part of the makeup team, but mm-hmm. I wasn't. And I just watched, followed James Cameron around and learned what I could from a distance and. Yeah, and then recently on Deadpool, I watched Tim Miller, who's directing the new Terminator. Mm-hmm. I watched uh, David Leach, who's uh, directed Deadpool 2, and I'm not sure. I think he's doing a Fast and the Furious spinoff now. But, you know, he was part of John Wick. He was part of uh, Atomic Blonde. Well, he was the director of Atomic Blonde. And I just, you know, I pay attention as much as I can and also watch how the actors work. And I, whenever I get a chance to ask an actor what they like from a director, I do. If I'm working on them, I'm like, because some like a lot of directions, some like a little. There's different types of directions. Some like it, some don't. Uh, when I was on Elysium, I got in, I was dressing Matt Damon in his his mech suit, and I got in the habit of asking him, you know, every couple days, because there's always conversation while you're working with him. I'd say, what was it like being directed by Clint Eastwood? Was it like being directed by Martin Scorsese? Mm-hmm. And, and he'd just start talking, and I'd listen. Yeah, you know, I asked Jodie Foster if she had any advice for a director when I was working with her, and uh, it, w- it was her last day. She was in the makeup trailer, just getting out of her. V- she wore a wig on that show, and she was getting out of the wig and getting out of her makeup. And I just said, "You have one piece of advice," and she talked for twenty five minutes. She just went on and on and on. And partway through, she said, "You know, I actually guest lecturer at USC." You know, and I was like, "Oh, great! I'm getting a free USC <laughs> lecture from Jodie Foster." That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was great. So how do you take all these lessons and then decide to apply it then to the unseen? Like, how do you then go from that kind of free lectures and free Tim bits with Kevin Smith to making uh, your debut as a director? It's certainly hard, you know, there's a big difference between talking about it and listening to it and observing it and then doing it, you know, and you kind of every, I think every director has to find their own, their own path and their own method. And uh, one of the things I learned early on, and I tell all makeup artists this when they start in the industry, it's like working on set can be a very high pressure situation because there's, you know, everything is go, 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 time, money, the clock is ticking. And you're, you know, sometimes you're working with big name actors that are scary. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of pressure in it. And it's not for everyone. Some people come to set and do try to do makeup, and it just stresses them out too much. So some people find other jobs that are less, you know, like for example, you can be a you can be a costumer that works on set and is constantly 
tweaking and adjusting and changing actors' clothes. Or you can be the one that works in the truck and is organizing the clothes. Or you can be someone who works in the costume department who is fabricating the clothes or designing the clothes. You know, you can get further and further away from set and you can find your comfort zone. There's a reason why that scrawl at the end of the movie is so long. Oh, yes, because there's hundreds and hundreds of us. You know, and makeup is kind of this, makeup effects at least is kind of the same thing. You can either work on set where you come to set, apply a makeup, go to set, maintain a makeup, and then remove it. Or you can work in the, the labs, the shops that build them. And that's a different environment. You know, if you're forte, if you're not into actors and the stress of set and the 18-hour days, you can go work in a shop, and it's sometimes a little more nine to five, ten-hour days. You're not dealing with actors. You're not dealing with, you know, and, and every every person is different. So, dealing with the pressure is one of the big things that I I tell people. You know, you're going to either learn how to do it, or you're going to adjust, or you're going to decide this isn't for me. And I. One of the things that kind of surprised me when I got on set and directed The Unseen was that I put a lot of focus into finding a way to not be stressed out and pressured about it. And somehow I did. I was basically on set and I was always chill and calm and soft-spoken and never, never freaked out and yelled at anyone and just like, you know, we'll find a way, we'll find a way. When you get hit with obstacles and challenges and something doesn't work, it's like a line I love to quote from Wag the Dog is when uh, Dustin Hoffman says we were making a movie called The Four Horsemen of the, po the Apocalypse and three of the horsemen died. <laughs> this is nothing. Yeah. You know, we'll make it work. And that's film. You're constantly adapting on the fly. You know, you get somewhere and things aren't the way they were supposed to be. The sun's not where you thought it was be. It starts raining. Mm -hmm. You know, the picture car won't run. There's a lot of moving parts to making a film, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, and some days are always going to be like better than others, right? Like sometimes the camera just breaks down one day, but then the next couple of days it's all good. And yeah, I, I mean, I worked, I did one of my first short, actually my first real short film. We had a film camera and we were getting towards the end of the shoot and we were starting to run low on film. And one day the on off switch on the camera literally stuck in the on position and it was sitting there on a counter burning through film that we didn't, we couldn't afford to burn through. And a buddy of mine who wasn't even a film person just had the foresight to grab the battery and rip it off the camera because oh, the yeah. switch stopped working yeah. but cut the power and mm -hmm. you know it saved us the film that we needed to finish the film you know and those are the kind of things that just happen and sometimes magic happens you know there's a shot in the unseen where bob is sitting in his pickup truck at the sawmill he's just parked he looks out the window and he sees this this other worker getting off shift and his family's come to pick him up and his daughter gets out of the car and hugs him. And just as they hug, a logging truck cuts through frame and blocks his view. And it's metaphoric of what he's lost. Mm -hmm. You know, the family, the life is right there. And boom, truck rips through his frame. And the timing on that could not have been better. And we didn't have control of the logging trucks. You know, we had, we had made the agreement to work or to film at the, the sawmill. But these were actual logging trucks coming in and out, dropping off loads, exit, leaving the lot. And we didn't have any, you know, like on a big show, these yeah. would be drivers. They would be sitting there with a radio and you'd be like, okay, cue the truck, cue the truck. And you'd try to time it the way you wanted it. But for us, it was just like, we're going to point a camera at Aiden. It's going to be trucks passing outside and we'll see what we get. And on the take that's in the movie, and I think we only did two or three, it was like magic. Like the timing of it was perfect. The emotional pacing of the scene, just perfect. And, you, you know, that's, that's the film gods being nice to you.
Yes, nice, yeah. And you've already had some screenings and stuff, and people have kind of reviewed the film where people kind of like they're getting it and they kind of understand uh, who the unseen is and what the unseen is. People are really digging the film. To, to say. Um, it, it premiered at Fantasia earlier, not this year, pre previously, and it played, uh, I think, I think 26 festivals. No, maybe 27 now, because we just played Oakville on the weekend. And yes, people really like the film. The reviews have been, like, the majority have been positive. Almost all of them have been positive, and a lot of them have been very positive. I mean, we're a low-budget film. There's mm -hmm. a few hiccups. Some people note things, you know, they always like to pick on things, but generally they love the story, they love the character, they love Aiden's performance. And the big response we get most of the time is that people go into it thinking it's a, it's a monster movie, it's a genre movie, it's gory, it's, it's creepy, and then they get delivered what they have described as a very strong dramatic story about a man and his family, and you know, the man happens to be turning invisible. Mm -hmm. So I started describing the film as a dramatic film with a genre vein. Oh, nice. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's it's the kind of film I like best is like my one of my earliest inspirations was Jaws. You know, my generation came up, grew up with Jaws and almost everybody I work with cites Jaws as their favorite movie. I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the reason Jaws has been so prolific is because you go in it to see a giant shark kill people. But you get an amazing dramatic story about three men on a boat hunting a shark and metaphorically yeah. hunting other things and the family connection to Roy Scheider's character. It's, you get this incredible dramatic story in this really well-acted film. And I think it's for a lot of young people that go to see a killer shark movie, it's their first exposure to that kind of quality. So I've always tried to give people story and character over blood and guts. Seven is the same way like that. Yes. It's like two cops chasing a serial killer, which sounds like every other movie ever made. But it's actually not just two cops chasing a serial killer. There's a whole bunch of other stuff yeah. kind of happening all around it. And yeah. they're trying to figure out their place in the world, in this ugly world. Um, in terms of this world, though, your films are going to be opening up this Friday at uh, Imagine Carlton Cinema. And yes. you're going to be hopefully adding some more dates and kind of seeing how the run goes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an uphill battle for indie film in Canada now, especially, well, I was going to say especially Canadian film, but really just any indie film is competing with Deadpool 2. Mm -hmm. So it's not easy. And uh, yeah, so I think we're having one big big night screening at the Carlton, and hopefully enough people come out that they'll be in demand to extend the run. And I think we're doing the similar thing across Canada. Ottawa, Calgary, Vancouver. We're also playing my hometown. Nice. Yeah. When I started making the film, I guess somebody on Facebook saw something and they talked to the people in my hometown that run the theater, which mm -hmm. I didn't even know was still in existence because it's such a small town. This theater had opened and closed 10 times while I was living <laughs> yeah. there. But I saw a lot of inspirational films there. And so when the theater reached out and said, hey, we heard you made a movie. We'd love to show it. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely show it as soon as it's finished, mm -hmm. as soon as the distributor gets it out there because I can't put it in houston bc before i put it in anywhere else yeah and it took a while to get to the point but um so they're going to show it i think july 21st or something okay do you have the what are the socials then for the for the movie or for you so that people can kind of see where all the dates are and all the cities uh well we're on we're on instagram at unseen film i think it's at unseen film all, okay facebook twitter and instagram are at unseen film you can you can find me at usually at Jeff Redknapp or Jeff Redknapp, and yeah, we're promoting all the release information through those. Okay, 
Great. Thank you, Jeff, for coming in and hanging out and uh, talking about uh, X-Files and uh, Unseen, Invisible Man. We covered a lot and we covered BC. Yeah, so it's been fun. Thank you. So hopefully the film does well and kind of opens up on more dates and kind of gets out there. Yeah, yeah. I hope it finds its audience because, you know, I think we really did get somewhere here with reinventing the Invisible Man as a what could be an iconic Canadian character because we didn't shy away from the film being Canadian. You know? Yeah. He is a Canadian. He is a former hockey player. He lives in BC. He works in a sawmill. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's even some Canadian money on screen and some BC license plates. So hopefully we can add him to the, the, the icons of Canada. Yeah, okay. That's perfect. We got to end it there. Thanks, Jeff. All righty. My name is Sammy. You can follow me on the Twitter at MyPalSammy. This has been my summer layer.